Hello, I'm Randall Peterson, and you're listening to the podcast, How Do I Lead Through Crisis? This is part of our leadership series in which we'll be exploring the big issues facing leaders today and asking what it takes to stand out from the crowd and leave a real impact on the way the world does business. At London Business School, we believe that being a great leader is about executing your vision, not being a version of someone else. Join us as we hear from leaders who dared to break the mold. You can see more of our leadership insights or browse our portfolio of leadership programs by visiting london.edu slash lbs hyphen leadership. I have with me two of my colleagues here today, Nero Sivanathan from the Organizational Behavior Group and David Farrow from the Marketing Group. And they are just about to launch a course on crisis leadership. And so we're going to be talking about some of the content there, some of the research behind it, and getting to know them as colleagues. So if I could ask each of you to introduce yourself just briefly, let's start with Nero. Please let the listeners know who you are and a little bit of background on your own perspective and research. Sure. Thanks, Randall, and thanks for having me on the podcast. As mentioned, I'm on the faculty here at the London Business School and specifically the Organizational Behavior Group. But much of my research falls kind of broadly under the umbrella of social hierarchy. I study sort of the psychological impact of people endowed with status, power, but also broadly interested in behavioral decision making. And in the classroom, what I cover are topics on negotiations, influence, and decision making. And that's where my path and interest in decision making crossed with my colleague, David. Yes. Hi, um, my name is David Farrow. I'm a colleague of Nero, but I'm from the marketing department, marketing subject area. And I've been in the school for uh, about 14, 15 years now. I teach behavioral economics and decision making. And that's also what my research is on, on the emotional aspects of decision making, of consumer decision making and managerial decision making. I'm also interested in charitable giving and aspects of behavior under time pressure. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you, Nero. Let's go ahead and launch in then. So let's start with the obvious question. What got you interested in crisis? So what got us interested? I could could sort of fill you on sort of where this started. So going all the way back to when I was doing a PhD, so at the risk of dating myself. So this is, uh, you know, 15, 16 years ago, when I was at the Kellogg School, there were two political economists that did a broad course on really crisis, but it was labeled as reputation management. And the idea that reputation is perhaps the most important commodity for organizations and managing that, and and especially when it's tested under crisis, was a critical skill. So, and I used to help with that course, and I thought it it was a phenomenal course, and not surprisingly, because it was two economists the focus was on sort of structures, processes, some of the implications of markets, et cetera, all of which are incredibly important elements. But, you know, as someone who was trained as a social psychologist and versed in sort of the behavioral side of things, it felt like if I were to offer this something like this, I would focus on, on sort of perhaps maybe the behavioral element. And then one of the bits where our paths crossed was I'm also interested in decision-making, as is David, and then we embarked on this course on sort of decision-making strategies for leaders, which is an exec course that was started a few years ago, and decided 
let's just kind of test introducing crisis into decision making. There's sort of normative models. How do people behave under crisis? And so we introduced sort of a crisis simulation. And as expected, people behaved in all sorts of various manners that is not predictive by normative models. So from there, in teaching this course and sort of seeing the impact of the crisis simulation, Dave and I really enjoyed um, working on that course together, started thinking about, you know, whether we should expand on that further and really sort of delve into crisis decision-making, crisis leadership, and really kind of around the, the human element. But let me pause there and, and maybe let David jump in. Thanks, Nero. Just to kind of supplement, both of us have been teaching for a while uh, related topics like decision-making and and negotiation and consumer behavior. And what happened with the recent crisis, the, the COVID crisis, is that I think we got to experience firsthand from various perspectives, both as individuals like family members, a part of uh, an organization like London Business School and society in general, crisis leadership, crisis management, or behavior in crisis of people, of citizens, of employees. So I think that experience of the last more than one year also shaped some of my interest in this topic. So I was doing research on related issues like decision-making, like information processing, like communication, but this intensive one year of going through a crisis probably also shaped my interest. Okay, interesting. So both of you had interests that kind of predate the pandemic here. And so you're leveraging things you've been learning for quite some time from the sounds of it to understand and be able to teach about crisis. So let's talk about what defines a crisis then. What does it mean? When do we see these different behaviors in crisis that we won't see under day-to-day? What defines it? I think definition of crisis or more specifically crisis leadership would be essentially sort of any sort of process by which an organization or a set of individuals need to deal with a major unpredictable event. And I think sort of the operative word being unpredictable, which of course also threatens to either cripple the organization, alternatively stakeholders, or as as we witnessed with COVID, the general public. So that, that you know, in, in the most specific form is what a crisis and crisis leadership would be. A parallel definition, if you want to sort of focus on sort of the agency and, and around leadership, which I gather we'll, we'll talk further about, is how do individuals and leaders sort of mobilize and apply strategies that are designed to help an organization deal with these sudden and significant negative events, right? What are sort of the blueprints or the processes that leaders are able to, to exercise and, and mobilize to move forward? But I think even more importantly, just not with leadership, I think the issue with crisis is that it doesn't just fall with sort of the, the senior leaders, but it's also does an organization's employees and managers and other individuals have the ability, the know-how, and the skill set to deal with these emergency situations? So I think that's, if you will, sort of kind of three sort of buckets that both define crisis and perhaps the agency or the leadership behind managing that crisis. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe a couple of things to add, Randall. Like Nero said, in the aspect of unpredictable uncertainty, novelty, often also time pressure, element of th- surprise. 
are also associated with crises. The question then, you know, becomes, given that these are some recurring aspects of, of crisis, what do we need to do? Or what, what do people, leaders need to do? Um, so as I was observing organizations in crisis and the recent last one year, I think it became very salient that some things are really important, given that, that definition that Nero and I provided or, or suggested. So identifying the key risks and key objectives that you know the organization or society might have. I mean, this might be just existence or um, health of, of individuals. Prioritizing resources is, of course, very important. Time, people, money, and making certain really difficult trade-offs. For example, lives versus you know opening the economy have been something that we've been thinking about a lot these days. Collecting relevant information in order to feed into decisions, understanding what works and how to be communicated in a clear way, and generally be in a mode of problem solving and making decisions. Okay. So I heard you guys talking about unpredictability, threat, and surprise being the kind of starting point. Then we ask questions about agency and how much control they have. But then also I hear you start to talk about what people do in those circumstances. So there's a lot there and there's a lot in a lot of different ways. I think people are studying crisis right now and there are you know, whole journals from across the whole scientific perspective looking at crisis and crisis management, of course, because of the pandemic. But what's your guys' take? How are you guys approaching crisis? And what are the key things to look at for you? Yeah, so this is, again, an excellent point, Randall. So when David and I started talking about sort of crisis and whether we should explore this a bit further, each of us went off as sort of academics to kind of, you know, let's see what, what the science is out there on crisis. And as you alluded to, and rightfully so, Randall, there are just a plethora of books, articles, and arguably as many courses devoted to managing crisis. And many of these sort of focus on the, you know, the structures, the, the processes that companies and organizations can perhaps instill within kind of their corporate framework to help mitigate sort of the risk and the aftermath of potential crisis. And as you said, there's just a sea of knowledge on this. And all of that is critically important. Right? sort of knowing how do you manage and what are sort of the critical steps organizations should consider even before they are dealt with the crisis. But I think what becomes very clear in the midst of sort of being in a crisis, every one of us, is that one of the critical elements is not necessarily just understanding the processes and the framework, but rather and arguably just as important, if not more important, is kind of the human element, right? So you could have a blueprint, you could have a process and a structure. At the core of it, it is a set of individuals who need to kind of mobilize on those. And as David mentioned, who need to make judgments, trade-off, decisions, communicate, etc. And I think it's that human element that is perhaps the most dynamic and the least controllable and the hardest to predict. And I think from our work on sort of decision-making, we know this, you know, there's sort of these normative models of how we should behave. 
And then there's kind of how we actually behave. And I think crisis is just kind of an exacerbated sort of context to see sort of that separation between here's all the things you should do when there is a spread of a virus or there is a disruption in your supply chain. And then here's what people actually do. So our focus uh, for two reasons. One, as you correctly pointed out, there is a, a sea of work in this domain and it's impossible to tackle all of it. And two, playing to kind of our strengths and our, and our research experience and our background, we focused on what we think is arguably one of the most important elements, which we kind of refer to as sort of the human factor. It is the single greatest variable and the hardest one to control. And our hope was to sort of give some guidance and framework that helps individuals overcome that hurdle. Yeah, just to kind of build on that, Randall, one other thing you can contrast it or contrast the behavioral perspective, which is what we take, you might call it like the technological perspective, okay? So suppose you have a crisis like the one we are facing, like health, major health crisis, which then also evolved into an economic crisis, etc. So you can think of it as something that for which you need major technological or development solutions. For example, you have to build hospitals, you have to develop drugs, you have to develop vaccines. And these are, of course, extremely important and necessary to get out of this current crisis. And because they are so salient and crucial and important, we might neglect other things that are necessary, uh, in particular behavior. So you might, for example, develop the best masks, and you might know that masks are really important. You might even develop that or, or document that. And that might be a technological knowledge and capability that is available to society. But if people do not wear masks, then you face a behavioral issue. Similarly, you can, you know, as we have done as a society, we developed vaccines very quickly, relatively speaking, and very effective ones. But if people have doubts about the vaccines or the governments that are promoting them, again, you have a behavioral issue. So I think the, the key thing here, which I, I want to emphasize, is that from a rational perspective, the technological solutions seem extremely you know, important and the main thing. And you know, one worry Nero and I have, or other behavioral researchers have, is that by emphasizing this rational perspective of the importance of technological solutions, we might in the process also neglect the importance of behavioral psychological obstacles we might face as a society or as an organization. Okay, wow, there is so much there. We could go in lots of different directions here. One of the things I guess I wanted to ask about then is, you know, you're talking about decision-making and, and taking account of the, the less-than-rational side of all of us. And so let's break it down. Let's start with, if you're in a leadership role, what are the kind of things you need to be paying attention to? I mean, I know I wrote an article in HBR about threat and rigidity, but I know there's much more than that. And you guys know that stuff really well. So in a leadership role in particular, what are the things I need to be aware of? So Nira and I, the way that we've been uh, kind of putting things into buckets, Randall, is because like you said, it is quite a lot. And there are a lot of things we need to think about as leaders. So we wanted to divide this into three kind of buckets. One of them is decision-making. And 
information that may feed into decisions and how people collect and process such information and respond to that. How do they think of problems, new problems that they might face throughout crisis? So there is that is one big bucket. Another important big bucket is communication. So communication both externally to citizens, consumers, as well as internally to our, our colleagues. And then that's something also quite broad. You know, it comes into that also public relations, for example. You know, one, one aspect, I mean, now we are not really in the PR side of, of things with the current you know immense COVID crisis, but m- many organizations face public relations crises. So how do you communicate when that happens? That's something that Nero can talk more about. And a third bucket was learning. Okay, so learning is, again, it's a big word, but how do you learn throughout the crisis from the various things that happen? So those are three big areas that we focused on. And critically, we don't think that this is, you know, like decision-making, for example, doesn't only happen during a crisis. It can also happen before as well as after. And same thing for communication and learning. So we view crisis as a process rather than an event, or at least that's one important way that we think that is to think about a crisis, rather than as an event that needs to be managed as a process that can evolve. It can start even before the current crisis started and can evolve over time. If I could sort of augment that, one of the things that we've sort of focused a great deal on, Randall, is that individuals are exposed to these scenarios, right? You talked about threat rigidity, that just the mere exposure and experience and and what we sort of refer to as simulations are incredibly, incredibly important for leaders. So I think the, the parallel to this, David and I often refer to is just the importance of simulations or even, for instance, flight simulations, right? So I think plane crashes from about 1940s to 1990s due to pilot error was around 65%. And it was this persistent data that just never changed despite all sorts of efforts. From the 1990s and onward, there was a precipitous drop in pilot error. So you still had plane crashes, but it dropped from about 65% down to 20% and then into the teens. And it appears one of the biggest culprits or the, the reasons for this drop was the introduction of real life flight simulations. And the idea that pilots, the more they experience what it's like to land in a hail or Canadian geese that get stuck in the engine and both engines go out as it did for the the US Airways flight, the more they are exposed to those scenarios, the more they learn and they're sort of nudged into a set of automatic behaviors they could engage in, which then is going to result in a better outcome that they could more safely land. And it's not much different than, you know, one of the best predictors of success of open heart surgeries is, is the number of times that heart surgeon has dealt with a similar case before. And so in that sense, for us, I think the thing with crisis isn't necessarily to teach people new sets of behavior, but rather to allow them to kind of unlearn and move them away from what is sometimes the natural behavior that isn't the right set of behaviors to engage in, right? So one of the stats that I think was almost alarming 
was, I think it was by the U.S. National Standards and Technology, which they did an analysis of sort of 9-11. And what they found is that among the survivors of 9-11, one would think that, you know, a plane crashed into the building, people would run out almost instantaneously. And I think what their data showed was that people waited on average somewhere between 20 to 25 minutes, sending off emails, putting on uh, pairs of shoes, changing clothes, et cetera. Right? So in that, in that moment of crisis, you know, you hear those announcements of, you know, in case of water landing, don't grab your luggage. And I used to always think, you know, why bother making that statement? That seems pretty natural. But turns out people's natural behavior isn't the right behavior during a crisis. So just to add to David's thing, I think we cover those three buckets, but importantly, we also really stress the importance of simulations and experience being such a critical role for leaders um, in being able to handle crises. Okay, interesting. So we've talked about, we've got the three big buckets here, decision-making, communication, and learning. You've just had a nice summary of some of the things that need to learn and some of the learning perspectives in a crisis. We've talked about some of the decision-making stuff. We've talked mostly so far about the kind of maybe negative side, things like threat rigidity and perhaps things people maybe taking some risks they shouldn't. But what about things like creativity? What happens in a crisis and creativity? Yeah, let me touch on that because I've been reading quite a bit about it and there is this sense that out of a crisis, we often come out with very creative ideas. And there is indeed uh, some work on how that might happen. You know, the fact that we are constrained and the fact that we have to make a different use of our existing resources is an important element of certain type of creativity. However, you know, I hate to be negative again a little bit, but it's important that we are aware before we get to these amazing, inspiring stories of creativity in crisis, it's important to understand what might be some barriers to creativity and then how some organizations have tackled that. So let, let me do that briefly, because a lot of what happens in a crisis actually might inhibit creativity if, you, if we think about it. So there is time pressure. You might seek to use familiar confirmatory ways of thinking that you have used previously. And, and that goes against creativity. Creativity is about broad, as opposed to narrow way of thinking, you go in different directions and, and time pressure would make that more difficult. You mentioned Randall fear and rigidity. Well, again, that kind of triggers a more narrow view of the world and narrow view of available solutions and also it decreases your tendency to seek different kind of people to interact with or to reach out to for input. One more thing that I found in my, in my in recent research with a PhD student is that crisis also makes you focus more on outcomes, on results. Perhaps naturally so. I mean, in this case, you know, for example, death of, of people is a very natural outcome that we societies and hospitals and and countries focus on as a performance metric almost, right? So it's a very natural tendency that we organizations, people, leaders, societies might focus on outcome. But we also know, Randall, that outcome focus makes us less creative, makes us take less risk. So at the risk of being somewhat negative again, I wanted to mention these three big aspects of crisis that 
would inhibit creativity. Now, having said that, and organizations that succeed in crisis anticipate and preempt those tendencies. So they foster experimentation. And we have seen how many experiments have been run in various different domains, Randall, throughout this current crisis, from what works in terms of uh, masks and social distancing and which treatments work. We have also seen the reluctance to experiment. So we kind of see a battle about experimentation uh, throughout the, the current crisis, uh, reassuring people and making them feel uncomfortable enough to try new things and fail if, you know, sometimes. And finally, to the extent that we can focus and reward process and not just uh, outcomes. I think those are difficult things to achieve, both for an organization and society, but they would encourage and foster a sense of cultural creativity, even during crisis. Thank you. So we've talked about decision-making, we've talked about some learning stuff, and we haven't yet got to communication. So why don't we talk about some of the things that need to happen when it comes to communication in a crisis? Obviously, it's going to be important. But when you see really a range in crisis of ability to communicate on the part of leaders, some that seem to do it just incredibly well. And there were a few people in this crisis who have really burnished their reputation through great communication in a crisis. And then you see others that are just terrible. What are the kind of common errors or things that leaders need to think about. The one that comes to mind off the top of my head is obviously the Tony Hayward Deepwater Horizons case, because I'm in the middle of writing a book about boardroom disasters and how they were mishandled. And that one just sticks in my head as something that is kind of an example of exactly that. So what should leaders know or think about when it comes to communication? It's funny you mentioned that, Randall. I think Tony Hayward is now kind of the poster child of how not to respond to a crisis, right? I, I think that clip gets shown in all sorts of, I think just generally leadership classes, but most certainly in crisis of sort of the worst things one can say. So a few things to consider, Randall, and, and things that we sort of try to address is one, as you mentioned, communication plays a critical role for leaders, both internally, right, given sort of the uncertainty, the stress that crisis produce and sort of being able to calm the nerves of individuals, but also the ability to communicate to the external world, especially if you are a company that as a public facing body, it's, it's all the more important that you also have multiple stakeholders that you need to communicate to. So oftentimes, I think the initial error is that leaders don't communicate enough during a crisis. And so one of the things we piggyback on some of the, the stuff that David covers around sort of the biases, it's even kind of highlighting why communication is so critically important during the process of a crisis. So we cover this idea of the Zygarnik effect, and I don't know if that's something you're, you're familiar with or your listeners might be, but broadly the, the Zygarnik effect is this kind of this psychological phenomenon around sort of our tendency to remember interrupted or incomplete tasks or events far more than ones that are completed. And so apparently the, the lineage to this, this effect is all the way back in the 1920s in, in the University of Berlin, where a bunch of social psychologists were having lunch and they gave their orders, not in a, in a systematic fashion, but they sort of called out the different things that they wanted. There was about six of them at the lunch table and this waiter took all that down, didn't write any of it down, 
and they sort of commented on, you know, it's amazing that he has uh, such good memory, and not surprisingly, five, ten minutes later, the order arrived with uh, not only the right meals, but also given to the right individuals. And the story goes that, you know, they were impressed by his memory. They left the lunch and then realized that one of them had left their wallet behind at the restaurant. They hurried back, went to this waiter, because obviously they had very good memory, to try and figure out if they could locate the wallet. The waiter sort of looks at them blankly, doesn't recognize who they are, let alone where they sat. And when they sort of inquired, you know, how is it that you don't remember this? The waiter sort of explains, look, I only remember things until the task is complete. And the minute it's completed, the memory gets completely flushed out. Right. So, and again, this is this idea that you remember things on tasks that are not completed or things that are interrupted. And fundamentally, I think what crisis does is it interrupts sort of daily events and daily narratives. And so the people are sort of hypervigilant to kind of find out what happens next. This ironic effect is why, you know, clickbait works, right? So you, you'll see something that says, you know, a man approached a lion, you won't believe what happens next. And of course, you now want to click to find out what happens next, because frankly, there's only sort of two options, either the lion hugged the man or bit his uh, head off. But still, you need to sort of figure out how it concluded. So one is to for leaders to understand that this kind of zygonic effect being sort of exacerbated during, during the crisis, but then also kind of really covering kind of the science of communication and sort of the, the common pitfalls that people make. And oftentimes what leaders do, and, and going back to Tony Hayward, and this is a very common error, is that when a question is asked of a leader, it's just leaders not realizing who they're answering to. They're not answering to the reporter. The answer is to the public and not taking the perspective of the public or your constituents oftentimes is the biggest mistake leaders make in PR interviews. Right? So that famous question, I think, is, you know, he says, no one wants uh, this to end more than myself or I want my life back. The question was never about the leader, nor was it about VP. The questions are always about, in one form or another, about the victim. And so whenever you answer, you always have to answer through the perspective of the victim, not the perspective of the organization. And that's a very small error, but oftentimes gets leaders into lots of trouble. And there's you know, common errors that you don't realize gets you into trouble, even sort of a negatively framed question, even just repeating that question in some form creates a soundbite that can have negative consequences. So we cover some of the understanding of the science of communication, a little bit around sort of influence, because you are trying to sort of persuade and try to highlight to people that there is a brighter path forward and sort of how you uh, communicate that is critically important. So those are, if you will, kind of three areas that we cover, sort of the importance of why communication needs to be hypervigilant, common errors that people make and sort of lack of perspective taking in these interviews, and then just kind of PR communication errors that oftentimes can be remedied through PR training fundamentally. Right. That totally makes sense, Nero. And funny you should talk about the Zygarnik effect because I teach that in my everyday life all the time because it's everywhere around us. So, you know, in, in the form even of, do you remember where you were when, right? When Kennedy was assassinated, when the plane went into the World Trade Center, etc. People have memories of that. They knew exactly where they were. They knew what they were thinking and so on. And there are these moments that people will remember. And if you're in the spotlight in that moment, 
this is where I'm going to go with it. What happens if that spotlight isn't a very favorable one? And people, the thing they remember is when you made a mistake as a leader, for example, how do organizations approach saying, oops, sorry, maybe we got that wrong? Yeah, I think some of the, the greatest avenues to sort of come out of that crisis, even in a better shape, is kind of knowing how to apologize, right? And when to apologize and how to do it and who should do it. You mentioned Tony Hayward, but on the other side, the Tylenol example is oftentimes celebrated as, you know, some of the, the swiftest and, and the right response by CEO who sort of recalled far more balls of Tylenol than was required. And again, it helped restore sort of this, this sense that what they cared above all else was consumer safety. An area that oftentimes goes ignored is that people make the wrong forecast. So oftentimes people don't apologize or they apologize by saying we didn't have any control or this was an external factor. Laura Teden and a few others have this wonderful research around when you apologize and you attribute those failures to internal causes, it actually results in a favorable outcome, both in sort of the stock market responses, et cetera, than one would have predicted. And, and this is a forecasting error whereby people think, oh, geez, if I say it's the root cause was internal, people might react negatively. But turns out one of the things that you gain from sort of highlighting, if it was in fact an internal issue and apologizing for this is people realize that, look, this is something that you have agency over, control, and the expectation is because you've identified it as internal, you're now going to take all necessary steps and beyond to fix this such that such failures will not occur in, in the future. And then that increases sort of trust in the organization. And as I mentioned, it has implications, positive implications for stock market reaction. So again, there's a science to apologies and apologies if done well in the right manner, timed well and by the right person, not only kind of helps you overcome crisis, but actually you might find yourself in a scenario where the firm's reputation comes out even stronger from that crisis. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks, Nero. I have two kind of big questions left here I'd like us to explore in the time we have left. But I want to send this next one to David, really, because I know you've been thinking about some of the differences in audience that matter here. If the people you're speaking to are one thing or another. When we talked about a study I've been working on where power distance matters, whether you're inclined to have big power differences between the top and the bottom, or you try to more equalize them, that it will have an impact on how you communicate, whether you want more distance or less. But I know you're talking about some other things too. So if you could share some of your thoughts with the listeners, I think they'd be interested. I think one reason to think of audience differences is that our intuition might be that we don't have time or there is no need to think of different groups and communicating differently to different groups, given the urgency. Okay, so there's time pressure, there's cost pressures, there's limited resources. So I think naturally we might want to have blanket communication, like just communicate the same thing for everyone. And I think that's that's a reasonable expectation or, or a default. But I think we might recognize that in some cases that might be problematic, that in spite of the difficulties, we might want to communicate differently to different people, different segments, different groups, different nations even. So fortunately, 
over the last few months, I had opportunity to work with different companies, organizations with on student projects on some COVID related interventions. One of them was about social distancing. And this was with an organization called Sergo Foundation. It's in the, it was based in the US, Washington based. And they collaborated with our students on ways to make people more careful about social distancing regulations, okay, in the US. And what this organization did, interestingly, they almost approached it from a marketing perspective. They segmented, that's a word that we often use in marketing, segmented the population that they were studying in the US to four different segments. And our students had to come up with different behavioral interventions that would help people, encourage people to socially distance. And just mention briefly that, you know, two of these segments actually were already very good in social distancing. So our groups had this challenge. One of the very often used interventions in behavioral science is social norms. So you tell people, for example, that 75% of those people who are staying in a certain hotel are reusing their towels, okay? There has been a very famous study by Goldstein and colleagues that talked about how those kind of interventions telling people about what others are doing or the percent of others who are engaging in some positive behavior can help change the behavior of others. But what we recognize in this study is that telling everybody of the percentage of social distancing in the whole population would be potentially problematic because those two first segments were already distancing. And there is actually evidence to show that if you tell people of the national average to those kind of people, it might potentially backlash, Brandel. So the good behavior of those two segments, you had to think about that carefully and not communicate to them potentially the percentage, but do something else. Hence the importance of thinking about segmentation. So the kind of study that I mentioned about the towels reuse would be potentially difficult. That idea would be difficult to implement in such setting where the norm or the benchmark at the moment is relatively low. So you need to think, first of all, differently, therefore, about this different situation, different group, different country, different differently. And some ideas of what we can do in that case would be to communicate, for example, raw numbers instead of percent, thousands of people, or in that village, or, you know, or in that city, uh, you can talk about trends. And finally, there are injunctive norms. So instead of telling people about the descriptive norm, you can tell them about what we want, what we approve, what we appreciate, what we acknowledge as a society. All right, thanks, David. That makes a lot of sense. So remember, segment your audience in, in terms of your crisis management and leadership. Probably all the time is probably good advice, but particularly important in a crisis here. Last question then is really building on that point, which I think is a great one, one we don't oftentimes think about like that, about segmenting it. And as Nero pointed out, knowing who you're actually directing communication at and who's actually gonna be listening. But uh, what else can you do to prepare leaders to manage and lead during the crisis? So based on all of this, and you're going to be teaching about all this, what do you do to help people really prepare? I'll mention one thing, which is about sort of preparing leaders, especially as, as they're facing a crisis at the moment, 
is how to sort of utilize and learn from the current crisis and sort of planning for future crisis. So one of the problems that I think leaders struggle with is this idea that it's hard for you to imagine what will occur during a crisis. We have empathy gaps. It's very hard, what are commonly referred to as sort of cold, hot empathy gaps, because you're trying to sort of plan for a crisis in a, in a cold state, and you're predicting how you will behave in a hot state and sort of the visceral drives that cloud your judgment and your ability to make sound decisions, right? And so we make all these projection biases, um, right? So people overpay or pay more for, for houses with a swimming pool when they buy it in, in the summer months than when they buy it in the winter months, right? In that moment when you're buying it, the utility just seems so profound, you're willing to spend more. And we make those similar types of judgments, I think, when we're planning for a crisis. So there is a lot to learn, and leaders should also think about sort of what does this mean for future planning? Because there's perhaps no better time to kind of realize some of the intricacies and the nuances that you are likely to face than when you're facing it in that moment. So that's sort of one half. I'll pass it over maybe to David. Yeah. Um, so Randall, I mean, picking up on what Nero said about empathy gap, I think having empathy, I mean, that word empathy is probably something that you also have thought about a lot. And it's definitely a key word in crisis management, in learning from crisis, in crisis leadership. Going back to the issue of mass wearing, for example. So in the beginning of the crisis, there was a you know, huge number of people who are doubting the benefit of wearing masks. And then this number decreased over time. So... Over time, we might have learned as a society the benefit of this behavior, but it didn't come easily. We had doubts around it. We had uncertainties. Which mask is good? Should we even wear a mask? So what Nira was saying is that when we look back, even in the current crisis, even now, you know, we might forget, we might underappreciate those kind of difficulties, those kind of doubts, uncertainties trade-offs that we have faced as a society or as another organization. So what Nero is saying and what I'm emphasizing is that this tendency that we have to look back as leaders or as societies, as people, and think that and see things as more clear, more obvious, more kind of straightforward than it might have been at the moment. Okay, that's what he means by empathy gap. Okay, this is kind of also called maybe hindsight bias, kind of things seeming clearer the route the path to solutions out of this might seem more clear than it was a priori or during the crisis so it's important to to record or to have a good institutional societal memory as leaders for what is going on at the moment so that we can be better prepared for the future great point david and i do remember when i was in graduate school, one of the very first things I was taught was don't judge the past by the logic of the present, which is kind of the reverse of that. It's very easy to be critical of the past, but we didn't know. And, you know, you can't make decisions about things if you don't know about them. And masks, I think, is a great example. It's you know easy to be critical of leaders who didn't necessarily promote that as well as they could have, as soon as they could have. But given what we know now, of course, that was obvious. And for a lot of leaders, if they don't know how to apologize, as Nero's talked about, that can actually get them into a lot of trouble. So sounds like a fantastic course. 
Thanks, Randall. For us as researchers in sort of decision making and social psychology more broadly, such a fun course to teach and, and, and have conversations with other executives. Thank you very much, Randall, for organizing this. Thank you, David, and thank you, Nero. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners on the podcast will do so as well. Thank you for listening to the LBS Leadership Podcast. You can discover more original thinking on leadershipatlondon.edu slash LBS hyphen leadership. Mm-hmm.